started this research maybe months ago or whatnot, mm-hmm. no matter which beetle I'm researching, every single time, it's the same song that gets stuck in my head. <laughs> I got my mindset on you. I got my mindset on you. Oh, that was good harmony. Yeah, that wasn't bad. <laughs> or maybe it was terrible. Most of us don't ever do I that mean, again. You'll figure it out when you're editing this episode. <laughs> I certainly will. But I was like, that's that's going somewhere. Yes, no. This today we get to talk about the Beatle that I think had the best song. The best solo song. Definitely. Oh, hands fucking down. Yeah. Tell me that every time you hear that song, you're not like, you know what? Like everything's awful but i love but this everything's song. okay in the three and a half minutes that i'm listening to this song yes it's such a happy song and we can thank the one and only george harrison for that song thank you mr harrison at least i think we can i don't really actually know who wrote that song i'm sure it was him mm, we'll see yeah <laughs> won't we though <laughs> we will, won't we though yeah oh yes all right then all right then well, Already starting with the accents. Welcome to Raw Candy. <laughs> this week we're going to be talking about George Harrison. Yay. Yay. My personal favorite beetle. Yes. And also, I think, a misunderstood beetle. I would completely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And we're your hosts. I'm Maggie. I'm Ashley. Yes. And continuing on the road of the Beatles, but not as Beatles. Yeah. And already we've already, I think, broken our... our game plan for this because this is definitely going to be a two-parter for George. I genuinely thought that we could do each Beatles solo stuff in an episode and I don't know why I thought that. (laughs) How naive we were. Oh my god. 2020, what a time. Am I right? (laughs) Good thing 2021's turning out to be so much better. Such lofty goals and all of them just up in flames. I mean, um, they're just up. They're all up there. We're like, oh, we got to reach now. Oh, we got to work. Yeah, 2021. It's going great. It's going great, guys. Yeah, it's this is great. great. Everything's fine. Nothing's destroyed. Not at all. Nothing. Not our democracy. Not our country. Hey, hey. Not our hopes a, and dreams. This isn't a political podcast. It's a fucking political podcast, Maggie. It's a political <laughs> existence. Uh we got to make everything political. Yeah, I guess now we do, yeah. Yeah, but we're not going to make this political. Right. This, not yet anyway, this doesn't have to be political. Well, and that's kind of the interesting thing, too, that I've been thinking about a lot since mm-hmm. we've been researching the Betleys. The Betleys. That they are all very complicated mm-hmm. human beings. Yeah. And I'm really starting to, like, start to, like, come to terms with my separating art from the artist and how and why and when and who you know it's funny i'm glad we started with ringo and then george because Mm -hmm. it's getting gradually more difficult to separate the artist Mm. from the arts there is some gray area and by the end of this it's going to be extremely hard yeah to uh to uh keep them separated hey (laughs) Yeah, that's what they were saying. You gotta keep them separated. <laughs> well, what we're not going to keep separated is our beers from our hands. That's God true. God damn it. That is true. <laughs> Pry it from my cold, dead hands. Yeah, honestly. This week, uh, I am drinking a lovely little sip of sunshine. 
Oh, by Lawson's. By Lawson's. Yeah, sunshine, here comes the sun. Yeah, sort of. see what she did there? Yeah, I get it. It's a joke. <laughs> I, it's an IPA. Yeah, that's pretty much all we have to say Actually, about it. Actually, I'm really surprised because it is a very basic IPA, but it's eight fucking percent. Yeah. And that's a lot of percents for a basic bitch IPA. <laughs> I, they had to put something in there somewhere. Yeah. So I guess they were throwing all their their money into the ABV pool. <laughs> I guess. They're like, I mean, here's a couple hops, like a little couple <laughs> sprigs of barley. Uh, here's a little citrus. You want to get drunk? Because <laughs> you won't get drunk. Did you eat dinner? Too fucking bad. You're going to get drunk. And in addition to that, we've got another called Festive Slacks from Bolton Landing. Yeah. Which kind of works because I feel like George was a very stylish young man. Yeah. So he had some festive slacks. Yeah. Also, that sounds fucking delightful. Yeah. It's a Belgian double. Yes. Is yeah. it double or dubelle? Double. But I like dubelle. Sure. <laughs> you can say Fine, that. you want to sound like a pretentious asshole, Maggie? That's <laughs> sure, fine. Sure, if you want that's I mean, right. trip, when the triples are triples, I guess. So you can say dubelle. Right. Ripel and Dubel. Oh. Mm. Get a little rolly on your R's mm. there. I can that's about all I can do is roll some R's. It's almost like my Liverpool accent isn't very good. <laughs> it's not. Hey, you know what I found out? What? Paul Hollywood, judge on the Great British Baking Show, mm-hmm. is also from the Liverpool area. Mm-hmm. And I would make my boyfriend watch it sometimes when we would have like our evenings where we were going to get a little tipsy and watch shows and make fun of them. Nice. Because that's a pastime we very much enjoy. And Great British Baking Show was one of those shows. Legit. (laughs) And he would always make fun of how Paul Hollywood would talk. (laughs) So now I'm like, oh, all I have to do is talk like Paul Hollywood to have the Liverpool accent. So now I'm just going to be like. Your bread has a nice structure. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, Actually, I nailed it. Yeah, that's that ain't bad. These um, rolls have a nice crumb. 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 It's not a crumb. It's like, a crumb. the only thing I can say very Liverpudlian is structure. Structure. And then for some reason, I worked that into a Herman's Hermit song. <laughs> and I was all day today, I was like, Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely structure. <laughs> so- <laughs> no, no, I meant that. I- <laughs> All right. I'm. So now I'm marrying Herman's Hermits at Great British Baking Show, and it's the best time of my life. You know what? I'm here for it. <laughs> I'm here for it. Got a lovely structure. <laughs> So now every time I hear that song, that's I'm, that's what I'm going to have in my head. All right. No, I'm here for it. I'm totally here for it. Yep. All right. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they're all from Liverpool. So we get to keep calling them Liverpudlians. Yeah. We can t- continue to use our favorite new word. Yeah. Liverpudlian. Yeah. And it, unfortunately, George is not from Dingle. God damn it. But he's from another area that's just as fun to say. So. And sometimes I think George does wrinkle dingle him. <laughs> Sometimes. He's wrinkled dingling all over the place. Not all over the place. That's mostly Ringo's job. I, yeah. But <laughs> he dabbles in the wrinkle dingle. <laughs> he keeps his wrinkle dingle under wraps for yes, the most part. For the most part. He's a reserved man. He keeps his wrinkle dingle in check. 
It's still funny. Oh, check out his wrinkle dingle. No. All right. That's enough, okay, bu- the, that's yeah, enough that's bullshit. Enough. We've that, wasted enough of your time. Yeah, on that note, let's actually get into the story. <laughs> Tell me about Joel, Jay. All right. Well, first and foremost, I should cite my sources. Your 30 sources? Nah. <laughs> I whittled them down. <laughs> so, for the main source, I used a book called George Harrison Behind the Locked Door by Graham Thompson. And I also watched Martin Scorsese's George Harrison Living in the Material World. I do not suggest it because it's boring as fuck. I'm sorry. I don't like Martin Scorsese at all. That's fair. I I feel like there are plenty of people who are not like standing Martin Scorsese. Yeah. And I am not one of those people. Yeah. I... I'm really bored by his work. Sorry. I'm sorry, guys. I just don't like Martin Scorsese. Also, a song called, or the documentary being called Living in a Material World just makes me think of Madonna. Living in a Material. Which makes me picture picture George Harrison as Madonna in that music video, and it's fucking hilarious. That is kind of wonderful. Now, I just want, like, a fan art of George Harrison dressed (laughs) as Madonna in the Material Girl (laughs) music video. Just looking very unhappy about everything. He is looking in the mirror, and he's like, I look fucking fab. Never look better in my life. (laughs) I've got a lovely structure. (laughs) bone structure that is Look he does these cheeks. he's not lying no honestly like george harrison could get it he could honestly all the beatles could get it they could <laughs> in their own specific way i yeah. fuck any of the like hold up time machine i'd fuck any of the beatles i would totally be one of those fucking stupid girls oh. falling at their feet yep absolutely and i still would be a ringo stan oh he needs somebody. Wow, he had plenty. He wants somebody to love. Oh. Okay. Anyway, let's get into this. So George Harrison has always been known as the Quiet Beetle, but the the nickname is a misnomer. True, he didn't talk much, but only spoke when he had something of importance to say. If George opened his mouth, you stopped and you listened. <laughs> Which is probably why George's Beatles songs made heads turn and ears perk up. Something, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, Savoy Truffle, all of these songs had that extra something. A deep earthiness and a brooding intensity that brought an extra layer of richness to the Beatles' repertoire. Something that came up over and over again in my research is that George Harrison could suffer no fools. Oh, oh. He didn't mince words and was straightforward to a fault. So if he didn't like you, you fucking knew. Oh, shit. He had precious few friends throughout his life carefully choosing the people he opened up to and was even more persnickety about those he admired. Oh, I mean, that makes sense. If you're going to like pick and choose your friends really carefully, you're not going to like admire too many people. Right. And the people you did admire, they were something special. Word. But that was all fine with George. He had his delicately curated close friendships. He had his guitar and he had his spirituality. Spirituality was also something he held very close to his heart in the second half of his life. However, he wasn't born into a religious family at all. Mm. George was born on February 25th, 1943. As far as I can tell, he didn't have a middle name. Okay. And also later in life, he would actually say that he was really born on February 24th, which is your birthday. (gasps) Pisces. Yeah. Oh, he's super Pisces. What do you mean he was born? Really born. 
He said he was born really late on February 24th. Oh, I think- so he's like just saying like, technically I've really been born on 24th, yeah. but they all put 25th on my birth certificate. I have a feeling the hospital was like, oh, he's born on the 25th, but his parents were like, nah, he was really born on the 24th. Parents can get very particular about what the fuck it says on your birth certificate. Yeah. Because it's, it's their narrative of your story. Right. Which is fair. Right. I mean, yo, bitch had to carry your ass for nine months. Right. You're not it. just like hopping out of the womb like, what time is it, bitch? <laughs> <laughs> but like, maybe? Swinging that umbilical cord like. You got that big umbilical cord energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But anyway, he was born in his family home at 12 Arnold Grove in Wavertree, a small suburb of Liverpool. Oh, he was born at home. He was definitely born on the 24th. Yeah. 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 Because, like, they're, like, at least an hour off. And probably nobody was really paying attention to the clock to at the, this time. They were all paying attention to the screaming woman when all the blood was coming out of her yeah. in the bed. You know, in, in serious fucking pain. Yeah. That was probably a bigger priority than what time it was. Yeah. It was the midst of World War II, but he could barely remember any bombings or air raids. He did remember the scars left on the city after the war was over. The crumbled buildings and blown out storefronts, the dirt, grime, and destruction left by the Germans. Hmm. Yeah, Liverpool got hit super hard. Yeah, harder than I thought that they did. Yeah, honestly, again, once again, this research has taught me a lot about World War II. Eye-opening. His father... Harold Hargreaves Harrison, which is the best name ever. Triple H. Triple H. The original Triple H. (laughs) The OG Triple H in here. Yes. His his father, OG Triple H, was a first class (laughs) steward for the White Star Line shipping company turned bus conductor and driver. And George's mother, Louise French, was a lover of the arts. When she was a teenager, she dreamed of being an actress. She also loved music and sang enthusiastically with a voice that shook the neighbor's walls. Oh, shit. (laughs) But she would never make it to Broadway. Mm. Instead, she worked at a grocery shop until her children started arriving. Louise was the oldest, followed by Harold, Peter, and finally George. Oh, shit. George had a lot of siblings. He did. The six-person Harrison family was squished into a four-room terrace house. It was not luxury living. Mm-mm. The house was heated by a small coal stove in the back of the house, so the rest of it was cold and the opposite of cozy. No. There was no bath, and the toilet was located conveniently outside next to the chicken coop. That sounds like hell. Yeah, that's not fun. Although, it's, it was the same with Ringo. Like, it was baths done by, like, you'd get hot water, like, maybe once a week, poured in mm-hmm. a tub. And yeah, your bathroom was in the backyard. And that's the same bath water everybody used. Yep. So if you were the youngest, you got the gross, used, dirty bath water. Oh, God. Whatever. You're the youngest. You can afford some bacteria. Yeah. Despite the house's lack of amenities, George had a good, albeit lower class, childhood here and arguably had the most normal childhood out of all the Beatles. So far, so so good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> His parents didn't divorce or die at a young age. He wasn't sent to live somewhere else, and there was no abuse or defining tragedy. The family was tight-knit. You had to be if you were living that close to each other. Harry and Louise were loving parents that were relatively progressive for the 40s and 50s. They allowed their children to be who they wanted to be and develop their own personalities. 
This meant the Harrison children were a bit free-spirited. Cool. But George barely knew Louise, who was already 12 years old when George was born. She was away at teacher training school during his formative years, and by the time he was 10, she was married and living in Scotland, eventually moving to the U.S. Oh, good for her. First of all, Scotland's great. Yeah. So, like, she she moved on up, and then she moved to the U.S. Yeah, I guess at that time, the U.S. was great. Is that when America was great? (laughs) I guess. Okay. I mean, that's what everybody, that's what all the mega chuds want to bring it back to. So (laughs) this is not a political podcast. (laughs) We're fiery guys. Sorry. (laughs) It's a hot week. Hot week. Yeah. But also, I'm really surprised because I assumed that all the Beatles basically had like a Disney story childhood. You would think, but no, the exact opposite of Disney. George had a wonderful childhood. Comparatively, yes. Absolutely. Compared to the other three? Yes. Yes. Harold was almost 10 years older than George, and Harold was doing national service while George was a kid, then married and moved out. Damn. George still tried to keep close to his older brother and formed a bond with his sister-in-law, Irene. When Harold was away at work, young George would walk a few blocks to their house and have tea with Irene in the afternoons. Oh. I'm just picturing, like, little child George, like, yeah. boop doop boop doop boop doop and, like, walk over and, like, hello, I'm here for some afternoon tea. Even teenage George would do that, too. He would skip school and go hang out with Irene. I just love the thought of, ooh, I'm a big old hooligan. I'm going to skip school <laughs> and go have school. tea at my I'm sister's have house. I'm going to have a cigarette, and then I'm going to go to Irene's house and have some tea. You do turn Southern with your accent. See? Blush and bashful. <laughs> Don't forget about your structure. My structure. <laughs> but what, cigarettes at that point, like, basically once you were five, you got handed your first cigarette. Like, all right, and smoke them if you got them. It's basically just dirt and straight up tar. So, like, <laughs> cigarettes back then were... Wrapped in a leaf. <laughs> basically. <laughs> Peter was only three years older, so George and Peter were the closest. In 1949, when George was six, the family moved to a council house at 25 Upton Green in Speak. And I actually had to look up how to pronounce Speak. because it's with an E. It's spelled S-P-E-K-E. Yes. And I was like, Speck? And then I was like, I feel really (laughs) dirty saying it like that because Speck is the derogatory word for the Nelwyn people of Willow. And I just felt wrong saying it. How dare you? How dare I? (laughs) So I was like, no, I can't say that. And luckily it's pronounced speak. Good. The house was much roomier than Arnold Grove, but the neighborhood wasn't much better. This was probably George's first introduction to teddy boys who roamed the streets, stealing cars and causing general mischief. At this point, I'm just picturing teddy boys as teddy bears dressed up in suits with that stupid fucking cloth hair. And they're like, they move like just, teddy bears. They don't have joints. Just dudes in teddy bear outfits and pompadours. Oh, they're they're furries. Yeah. <laughs> the, the original furries. <laughs> teddy boys, the original oh. furries. George attended Dovedale Primary School back in Wavertree, where John Lennon also went to school. Hmm. But John was three years older, so the two never crossed paths. George excelled in sports, but caused his fair share of trouble. He liked pranks, but would step in if he saw anyone getting bullied. He was well known in school for his humor, self-assuredness, and total contentment in being a loner. All right. 
good for you. Which I totally relate to. I can see why George is your favorite now. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know it. I was just like, yeah, I guess I like George. He's fine. If you guys were in school together, you'd just both be loners hanging out, like, but away from each other, but at the same time, like. We would totally be content sitting in a room, not speaking to each other. Yep. <laughs> and that's quality time together. At that point, you'd be like, no, we're friends. We sit in a room. We don't talk to each other. It's great. Yeah. And just make, like, facial expressions at all the bullshit that everybody around us is saying. Yeah. You guys would be like, the two would be, like, making eye contact and saying, do you get Rolling our eyes. <laughs> oh, you and George definitely would have been friends. Yeah. Academics were not his forte. Everyone was surprised when he passed his 11 plus exams <laughs> and was accepted into the Liverpool Institute in 1954. Yeah, one of his friends said he was like, he was proper chuffed to have. He was proper chuffed. He was proper chuffed to have oh. passed him. <laughs> Does that mean he's just really happy about yeah, it? Yeah, he was really happy. Also, can we bring back chuffed? I, I mean, always like saying I'm chuffed as puffs. I mean, we should bring it to the US because they definitely still say it <gasps> in England. Fuck yeah, let's bring chuffed over here. All right. Because I love it. Yeah, I like saying it. It's fun. I'm probably chuffed. Don't, we don't really have a word for it no. here because it's a very specific feeling. It is. Being chuffed is different than like just being happy or being yeah. psyched. Or it's being like, glad or being whatever. Honestly, chuffed is like a warmth. It's like yeah. a hug. You're very proud of yourself. Yeah. Oh, I'm chuffed as puffs. Aw. <laughs> yeah, the Liverpool Institute was no joke. They were harsh, draconian, and loved to dole out corporal punishment. Oh, no. I don't think you're chuffed anymore. The no. chuff is gone. You're chuffed to have passed those exams, but you ain't so chuffed to be going where you're going. No. Unsurprisingly, George hated it. He was a popular kid at Dovedale, but at the Liverpool Institute, he was nothing. Mm. He lost all interest in school and sank into the background. His sharp humor turned dry and devastatingly cynical, oh. and his view of authority plummeted. He's like 13 at this point. Not even. He was oh like 11 God. or 12. <laughs> As he's just a kid. He shouldn't a, go that cynical he's just yet. A baby broody boy. Oh. As most teenagers do, George went through a pretty wild, angsty period in his teens. He was super fucking emo. Oh. He was so emo. He even had the emo hair. He had like the X's on the back of his Don't. hand and like just the hair in his eyes. Yeah. He didn't talk to anybody. He gave the finger to authority. He had his like, I don't know, dashboard confessional t-shirt on. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That works. Maybe a hemp necklace. Ball chain. Ball chain. I don't know. Yeah. He skipped school and took up smoking. <laughs> oh my God. He was emo. <laughs> yeah. He was a wannabe teddy boy skirting the school's dress code by wearing blue suede winkle pickers and skin tight pants. I'm sorry. He wore what? Winkle pickers. I'm, I'm, excuse me. Winkle pickers. Winkle pickers. Do they pick out the winkles in your suit? <laughs> Kinda. Oh, my um, My suit's so wrinkled. I need my pickers to get them out. So winkle pickers are those like skinny boots that had the super long pointy toes. Oh, my God. Those are terrible. And they called them winkle pickers, apparently because in medieval or renaissance times, people would wear boots like that and they wore them to like pick snails out of the mud. And the snails were called winkles. 
So they were winkle pickers. But why did they pick the snails out of the mud? Those snails were perfectly content. To happy eat being- them. Oh. <laughs> Are you shitting me? No. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Those oh are winkle pickers. God, that's disgusting. Yeah. Ugh. But somehow, those shoes stood the test of time. <laughs> Nobody's eating snails with them anymore. That's it's fine. not true. The French. <laughs> Somebody is. Escargot. Yeah. But he was small, skinny, and gawky, with oh. ears that stuck out and hair that looked, as one friend described it, like a fucking turban. <laughs> Oh, yeah, fucking turban. A fucking turban. Yeah. <laughs> Around the age of 12 or 13, George started taking an interest in playing guitar. There it is. Thanks to his parents, he already had a deep love of music. Music was like the seventh family member, with the sounds of jazz, Irish tenors, big band, and pop crooners filling the air in the Harrison home. That's lovely. But one day, while doing his rounds as a delivery boy for a local butcher... George heard Heartbreak Hotel coming from a customer's home, and it changed his life. Rock and roll from here on out was IT IT. (laughs) Capital I, capital T. Capital I, capital T. IT. From then on, George was obsessed with acts like Fats Domino, Buddy Holly, and Little Richard. You know, good choices. Good choices. But really, he would listen to anything. Music was kind of limited in these days, especially when it came to rock and roll, It took a lot longer for U.S. rock acts to make it across the pond. So whatever he could find, he listened to it. Wasn't Europe, I mean, probably U.K., England specifically, even more, oh, no, the rock music than even America was at the time? I don't know. I mean, I would assume that the Utes at this point in England were like, no, we need something. Oh, no, the Utes everywhere were like, shut up with your old music. I want rock and roll. Right. But I think at this point, England was so done with the traditional stuff. Like, there's only so many ways you can redo the traditional yeah, English and Irish drinking songs and whatever. And right. yeah, Skiffle was a thing, but it was still just the the traditional songs redone in a different way in the skiffle yeah right in so, the skiffle in the skiffle so yeah they were looking for some other shit so they of needed course, the new hotness right and of course everyone all parents everywhere were like clutching their pearls <gasps> over this stuff did they just swing their hips <laughs> how dare they my gourd how dare you <laughs> i'm telling the church <laughs> The Liverpool Institute did have a music program, but they didn't allow electric guitars. So George had to find other means to learn the instrument. Fair enough. When he was 13, his mother gave him the money to buy his first guitar. Damn, mom. Louise was legit. Louise didn't fuck around. She is mother extraordinaire. All right, mom. And everyone loved her. Here for it. He was obsessed from the start. Staying up way past bedtime, playing chords until his fingers bled. I've got blisters on my fingers. (laughs) Even though that's Ringo, but still. Still. He literally wore the guitar out, but Louise gave him a sweet upgrade. Harry even arranged for actual lessons from a friend named Len Houghton, who would teach George every Thursday night. Oh, so Len Houghton was a friend of Triple H. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Not old yet. Yeah, Triple H arranged to have lessons 
by I just Lent. picture him in like those wrestling booty shorts and like wet hair for no reason. And just really tight underwear just sitting next to George. Okay, George, I got you some some lessons. You're going to go to that guy's house and you're going to fucking do those guitar <laughs> lessons. He's like, all right, dad, I'll all do it then. All right. <laughs> I'll learn the structure. <laughs> Chord structure. <laughs> Through Len, George learned jazz numbers. But from his classmates, he learned contemporary songs by The Shadows and The Ventures. Nice. Having both in his back pocket put him a step above his peers. And George's first band, of course, was called The Rebels. (laughs) And it included his brother Peter and their friend Arthur Kelly. They lasted for exactly one show. Oh, no. But it was absolutely everything to George. The next day, he told his new friend, Paul McCartney, (gasps) all about the gig. Paul was nine months older and a grade ahead of George, but they both lived in Speak and rode the same bus to school. Mm -hmm. And they became fast friends and bonded over their shared love of the Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly. Mm -hmm. The Venn diagram of our episodes right here. It's, it's, there's layers. Legit just read about this in uh, one of my Paul books. Yep. (laughs) It's a cute little meat cute. cute. It it is. You know what? That's a meat cute. It's a meat cute. Hanging out on the bus, talking about music. Meet cute. Adorable. In their little fucking uniforms and shit. <laughs> and their their winkle their winkle their pickers. Winkle pickers. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Paul was in a band called the Quarrymen. They were a skiffle group whose de facto leader, John Lennon, would let pretty much anyone in the band as long as they could be useful. <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> <laughs> Paul championed George to the rest of the group, but John was not impressed. He thought George, who was only 15, was too young. And worse, George looked like he was about 10 years old. Yeah. He looked very young for a long time. And then as soon as he, like, caught up with his age, then he just looked 45 for the rest of his life. (laughs) He had had two ages, 10 and 45. That was it. But bright side, after 45, he still looked 45. He still looked great. Yeah. Good for him. Eventually, John was won over, and in February 1958, George became a member of the Quarrymen. George was fascinated by John. He was this aggressive, charismatic macho man already drinking and fucking his way through Liverpool. Damn. George was the exact opposite. Small, skinny, goofy looking, didn't drink, didn't smoke. What do you do, goody goody two shoes? <laughs> Oh, he's just adamanting it all Aww. over the place. <laughs> Poor George. He tried. He really tried with the ladies, but they were all just like, oh, little George. I don't know. Depending on my age, I would have gone for George. Yeah. Probably Dep- over, actually, especially over John. Like, John would have intimidated me. And I'd be like, I don't know about this guy. <sighs> I'm going to go to the guy who doesn't seem like whew. a dick. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, John was kind of a dick. But anyway. He was a charismatic dick. He had the charisma. He did. He, he definitely had like a high charisma score. Yeah. Bow show. Definitely. But George quickly made himself useful to the band. Being the only member with family that encouraged and enjoyed the band, mm. Louise and Harry got the Quarrymen quite a few gigs. Oh, shit. 
But when John's mother, Julia, died on July 15th, 1958, things kind of changed. Yeah. The quarrymen went on an unspoken hiatus while John dealt with his mother's death. Fair. Meanwhile, George joined another band called the Les Stewart Quartet. I definitely thought you were going to say the lesbians. Which <laughs> <laughs> would not make any sense. I don't think that was even a word that was allowed to be spoken in No, England it wasn't. But I really, point. really wish that a young George now was in a band called the Lesbians. It would be like a <laughs> sick 80s punk rock band. Like, But it would have to be the Lesbian Quartet. Oh like it's God. somebody's name. No, I could see it being... Maybe even a riot girl band. Yeah. And then, like, he's the one guy member. They're like, all right, he's cool because he's not a sexist piece of shit. Yeah. He can be in the band. But also at that point, I think he could be pretty gender fluid because he was still a skinny, gawky Skinny, gawky kid with hair in his eyes. Totally. Yeah, I think that makes him more attractive to me, actually. There you go. Making Mm. George Harrison more attractive by the minute. Here we go. Mm. Mm. Is he still underage at this point? Yes. Nope. He's, Never mind. He's not attractive at all. He's, he's not. He's 15. He is a child. He's yes. just a kid. And I mean, life if, is if not I, fair. If I was the same age. Oh, yeah, definitely. But not right now. Oh, no. I like that we're trying to like make this okay. <laughs> uh. I rescind everything. <laughs> They had secured themselves a recurring gig at the Casbah Coffee Club, owned by Mona Best, mother of future Beatles drummer Pete Best. Did they rock it? Well, yeah. Okay. This is what the Clash was talking about, was the caf- the Casbah Coffee Club, right? Yeah, right? That's what they're rocking, Sharif is just is just Pete's mom. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think the Sharif likes it. Yeah. Because she owns it. Right. The Sharif likes it. No, they say the Sharif don't like it. Oh, fuck. Maybe it's his dad? Um, Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but the quartet had a huge fight and broke up right before the first show. No! So George called up Paul and John and explained the predicament he was in. They agreed to get the quarrymen back together and play the contracted shows that the quartet had ditched. All right, everyone. We're getting the band back together. <laughs> We're going to have to play their chord structure. We're going to have to go and rock the Casbah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do it for Pete's mom. Mona. Mona. This one's for you. <laughs> it's getting better it every is, episode. <laughs> you know what? I got to admit it's getting better. It is. It's it getting is. better every episode. <laughs> anyway. Yes. George knew this was just the beginning. Music was his density, and school could fuck itself. Yep. He dropped out of school in 1959 when he was 16, much to his father's dismay and his mother's delight. Oh, shit. Yeah, Mom. Yeah, Louise. Louise? I'm telling you, fucking amazing. She gets it. She was unwaveringly supportive of his desire to become a professional musician. Harry, while supportive of George's musical endeavors, would rather he just had a backup plan. And George agreed and got a job as an apprentice electrician at a department store in Liverpool called Blacklers. Triple H, ever the businessman. Indeed. Mm. Always looking out for his constituents. (laughs) And money. And money. Mostly the money. Let's face it. Yes, money. But it wasn't long before things took off musically. In 1960, John's friend Stuart Sutcliffe joined the band on bass, 
which he didn't really even know how to play, but he had an image that fit and that was good enough. (laughs) Yeah. I remember reading about how they're like, sometimes it shows like right before they'd go on, they had to teach Stuart the chords and like the the tab and everything. Yeah. He didn't really know what he was doing. But he he was God smacking it real hard. He looked so good though. Exactly. Right. That's really what he was bringing to the band. I mean, you know what? Here's the thing. There is a part of bass where you can just go on. As long as you know, like, some basic tabs and bullshit it. And let's be honest, at this point, Stuart Sutcliffe was the best looking Beatle. Oh, Stuart could get it. Yeah. He looked like, he kind of looked like Matt Smith if Matt Smith wasn't so weird looking. Uh, Okay. (laughs) If you took the Rocky Dennis out of Matt Smith, you get Stuart Sutcliffe. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. <laughs> Just a really backhanded compliment. He'd look like this guy if this guy wasn't weird looking. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Yeah. They changed their name from Johnny and the Moondogs to the Silver Beats Alls to the Silver Beats and then finally the Beatles. Wow, B-E-A-T-L-E-S. They could not f- just sit their ass on a name, could they? <laughs> Right. Looks like the Oneaters. <laughs> <laughs> the boys met Alan Williams, a club owner and promoter, who got them a touring gig in Scotland, backing up another musician named Johnny Gentle. Ooh. Which is just a, that looks, it sounds like a porn name. I'm sorry. He's Gentle Johnny. Bro's doing gay porn. I, oh. Which is great. You know what? Good for him. I like gay porn, but like. Just no Johnny spitting. Gentle. What? 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 Yeah. It's COVID. You can't spit. You're not allowed to spit in gay porn right now. It's COVID. <laughs> this was it for George. He was doing this music thing and that was it. He quit Blacklers and officially put all his bets on the band. He was only 17 and a full-time professional musician. He was just 17. 17. Oh, I was going to go, if you know. What I mean. Oh. It's a Beatles song. I'm sorry. It's... No, I was singing like... Oh. Oh. Was it right? He was on the edge of 17. There's a lot of songs about being 17. Oh, wow, there are. When I was 17. And all of them are about fucking a 17-year-old when you're way older than them. Oh. Yeah. Problematic. Wait a minute. Is that what Edge of 17 is about? Yeah, it's about Stevie Nicks like liking Fucking a seventeen-year-old. Y- well, liking a younger guy. All right. Oh shit! Wow! All the- wow! It it all of them are about fucking. All a of them are wrong. Wow! And only legal in a handful of states. Mm. Okay. So yeah. After returning from the tour, Alan Williams became their booking agent, and the band played as many shows as he could get them. Pete Best joined on drums, and soon enough, Liverpudlians couldn't get enough of the Beatles. But Alan wasn't going to let Liverpool hog them. At the oh, time, shit. at the time, Germany had a super hard on for UK bands and mm-hmm. paid them well for p- playing at their clubs. Mm-hmm. So in 1960, he sent the boys to Hamburg, Germany, to play at Indra and Kaiser Keller, which were clubs owned by Bruno Koschmitter. This we this, it's the same. I feel like we've done this before. Yeah, sounds 
achingly familiar. God, why does this sound so familiar? <laughs> Even in which the way we hesitantly say the names. Yeah. <laughs> Koshmider. At the time, Hamburg was a pretty seedy place. Think of it as the Las Vegas of post-war Europe. Ew. Germany. Post-World War II. <laughs> Yikes on bikes, am I right? Yeah. But it was the most magical place on earth to a group of late teen, early 20-something boys. It was Disney World with hookahs and blow. (laughs) Yeah, it was. (laughs) Technically, George wasn't even old enough to be on the Reaper Bond, which was the street where these clubs were located. Mm -hmm. He was only 17 and not old enough to work in Germany. So Alan faked all of George's visa paperwork. Yep. I do remember this story. Hamburg is where the Beatles cut their teeth. Instead of 20-minute sets, they played for hours on end. Yep. They took requests, interacted with the audience, and learned how to keep an audience occupied and interested. They took requests from a drunk Ringo. was like, just play your blues songs. (laughs) I like your pop shit. Yeah. I I don't like the structure. (laughs) (laughs) They played dingy basement clubs with no windows, surrounded by drunks and breathing more cigarette smoke than oxygen. The boys went from broomsticks on stage to body swearing confident showmen. The five of them lived together in one room above an adult movie theater, and none of them showered because the bathroom they shared with other tenants smelled even worse than they did. Woof. Yep. Hamburg was a coming-of-age experience for George, who not only saw a new part of the world and became a better musician, but also finally lost his virginity. Oh, I read this story. Yeah. And this is actually in the Ringo book. With all the other dudes in the room. Like, gross. Woof. I heard they clapped when he finished. (laughs) Yep, that's exactly what this book said. Gross. Like, I, I mean, I didn't know. You know, like, you know what I think is weird, too? This is this is probably a weird digression. I I apologize. Women are very comfortable with each other. I can be like pretty much naked around my girlfriends. I don't care. Yeah, because I know it's not like a weird sexual thing. Well, yeah, and it's just like whatever. My body's my body. Your body's your body. Whatever. But like sex? No, I don't want to have sex in front of you or it's- around you. But like I feel like men are like, yo, bro, I don't want to see your dick. But like they can like, fuck I'm a gonna- woman. Yeah underneath in the bunk underneath you and that's totally yeah. cool that's not gay like i was fucking a woman i have heard so many of my male friends talk about when they would be in college and they would just like fuck their girlfriends in the same room as their college roommates yeah with their college roommate like four feet on the other side of them and i'm like no, no. like why would you do that it's so awkward i i would never ever ever want to do that why? Why can't you just like wait until you're in a private, more private area? Yeah. Yeah. I just, no. Yeah. I never did that and I never would ever want to. I just feel like, I don't know, like losing your virginity. And like, it's like a weird show off thing. I was like, I might, I lost the big V card <laughs> finally. Did you hear me? I, I bet finished. you heard me. I'll finish after 30 seconds real hard because I'm a virgin. But my dick has a great structure. I'm sure it does. All right, I apologize. Continue. Anyway, 
There have been crazy rumors over the years, making it seem like Hamburg was one giant Beatles orgy. Though they Borgy. did- <laughs> Borgy. Oh, Borgy. And then Bjork comes in, she's like, oh, I have nothing to do with this. <laughs> My name is pronounced Björk. Björk. It's a Björk G. <laughs> <laughs> Just Björking off all over the place. <laughs> yes. I'm fine with oh. Björk Björking. <laughs> Though they did not have any problems finding a number of women each to go home with every night, George insisted it wasn't a free-for-all in the room every night. He did, however, enjoy plenty of whiskey and Coke. And by Coke, I mean Coke, not not Coca-Cola. Yeah, like... Yeah. Oh, he did the Fleetwood Mac route before Fleetwood Mac. So Fleetwood Mac was really George Harrison in yeah, it. They- <laughs> Fleetwood Mac was doing a George Harrison before. Bef- yeah, they after, were doing a George- yeah. after George Harrison invented the George Harrison. Yeah, the George Harrison whiskey and Coke. Yeah. And then Fleetwood Mac's like, I heard that George Harrison likes to do whiskey and Coke. Actually, now that I think of it, they might have meant Coca-Cola. I'm going with blow. Well, in the Ringo book, they did talk about how because they had such crazy fucking schedules, they were doing like poppers and shit. Yeah, they were doing pills and stuff. They were popping pills. I read nothing of cocaine in Ringo's book, but But that doesn't mean that it wasn't brought up. See, I'm just so used to just coke in every (laughs) single story we do that I automatically went to amphetamines. Not Coca-Cola. They were definitely popping pills, though. Oh, they were. They said that in the book. They were definitely popping oh, no. pills and because doing they had speed. To. Yes, like it was such a fucking crazy schedule for every band involved. Yeah, they were saying that George would stay up for days on end yep. because he would pop pills because they would have to play all of these shows, and like they would have a seventy-two hour, you know, span of time oh, where like forty-eight of those hours were playing shows. So yes, he is popping fucking pills. This is why I thought they said Coke because it made sense. It does make sense though. Yeah. Either way, they were were probably wrong. We're not wrong. We're not right. Yeah. We somebody can fact check this. That's fine. George may have grown up a lot while in Hamburg, mentally and physically. Oh. But he shot up while he was in Hamburg. (laughs) I bet he did. (laughs) Dick jokes. But it was his age that eventually ruined the trip. Mm-hmm. Behind Bruno Koschmitter's back, the Beatles played shows at the Top Ten Club. Peter Eckhorn, the club's owner, paid better and had a better PA system. Koschmitter was pissed, so he ratted George out. That's fucked up, Koschmitter, because you, you know you just shit in your own bed, too. Yeah. Kosh fucker. He's like, if I can't shit in your bed, I'm shitting in everyone's <laughs> bed. Who shit the bed, Frank? <laughs> George assumed he was out of the band, but lo and behold, the other guys got themselves kicked out of Germany, too. Oh, yeah. They took revenge on Koschmitter by setting a condom on fire inside his club, the Bambikino, except they set the actual club on fire. There are, like, 50 different versions of yeah. this story. There's the condom. There's, like, they just started, like, an alcohol fire in a trash can. <laughs> There's like they actually just set fire to the building. Like there Molotov are 50, cocktails, like anything. There honestly, there are so many. Like Ringo's book, I read one story. The Paul books, I'm reading different story. Mm-hmm. Like Jesus, this Christ. is what I read in the George story. Yeah, I'm probably gonna have a different one for Paul. <laughs> Let's see how many different stories we can find. Honestly, 
The only Beatle that didn't make it back to Liverpool was Stuart Sutcliffe, who stayed in Hamburg to study art with his girlfriend. Astrid. Astrid. They had a which, lovely relationship. Which I'm sure we will get to in a future episode, either in yours or in my story about John. Yes. I will also shout out Muses because they did an episode about Astrid and Stuart. Good. So go check out the Muses podcast because they have a wonderful episode about that. Good. Though Stuart was still in Germany, the boys continued to play shows in Liverpool. They played musical chairs with instruments, with Paul ditching his guitar for bass, John becoming rhythm guitarist, and George becoming lead guitarist. Now they were venturing into writing their own songs. George's position in the group became clear. He was never a flashy guitarist. Mm -mm. He was more concerned with precision than flair. That doesn't mean he wasn't creative. He's written some of the most recognizable and beloved rock and roll melodies in history. Um, you know what? I'm going to say it pretty much every single, like you said at the beginning, every single George song. Fucking bop. Yeah. Um, some of my very favorite, favorite Beatles songs. While my guitar gently weeps, chef's fucking kiss. Fucking amazing. That most one guitar song. riff. That one guitar riff. How does your heart not break every time you hear it? You're like, well, now I'm crying. I am weeping. God damn it, your, George. Your guitar makes me weep, too. <laughs> he did it. Also, the guitar riff in something. Fucking fantastic. Yeah, like something is a song you bone to. I don't know. Some Something is a song that I cry to. <laughs> oh, I like I think it something's is, just like a really beautiful love song. Absolutely. It is absolutely gorgeous. Right. But it it's also... I, there is not a word for it in English, and I really wish that there was, but it it does that thing where it's like so beautiful and melancholy that it makes you cry. It's very personal. Yeah. Feels like George is unbearing his soul. It kind of is. Kind of is. But he always took a methodical approach to songwriting, even in these early days of the Beatles, and was meticulous about every note. I believe it. Yeah. George was technically sound. He was very technical when as like the way he approached guitar playing was very technical Mm. and he he didn't go crazy. He wasn't like a a really flashy soloist or anything. It was very every note had a purpose. Right. For George. And I think that was perfect for him. Mm -hmm. That doesn't work for everybody. Some people have to be really fucking flash. Um, but George did not have to do that to get his point across. No, he, 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 like, it's almost like his technicality is fed into his emotions. Yeah. And that's a rare thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a rarity as I don't, far as guitar playing goes, I feel. I really can't think of anybody else who, who does it that way. Prince. I would say Prince would be on par Pretty with close. George. I can see Prince and George having very similar personalities. Mm-hmm. This makes sense. You know who wishes they were George? Prince. I was going to say Eric Clapton. I will get to Eric Clapton <laughs> in our next episode. Oh, yes, you will. I can't fucking wait. Oh, can you hear my eyeballs creaking as I roll them? <laughs> Holy shit. Our eyeballs are sore, guys. <laughs> Too much Eric Clapton. George's singing voice, however... Needed a lot of work. Really? Yeah. In his early um, vocal endeavors, <laughs> his his voice is not very. He doesn't have a wide range at all. Oh. Uh... I'll get. I'll get okay, to. Okay, you'll it. get to it. Yeah. 
His vocal talents lent themselves much better to harmonies and backing vocals than lead. I believe it. Bro can slay a harmony. All right. But when it came to lead vocals, not that great. He mm. doesn't have a wide range. He's very good in in the range that he has and doing harmonies and stuff like that. But lead vocals aren't that great. I had you listen to the song, Do You Want to Know a Secret? I've got a secret. Oh, I really like you. <laughs> Off of their first album, Please Please Me. I think it is the most adorable fucking song I have ever heard in my life. Especially when you compare it to John's murder songs. <laughs> which he had a lot of, which yeah. we'll talk about in a few yeah, weeks. we'll get there. Sorry. Um, <laughs> but but um, technically, it's not like a hard song. None of their songs are very no. hard to sing. But you know what? It is a bit Ringo, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> It's it's very um it's very rudimentary, I yes. suppose. Yes. Um <laughs> it worked hold on though. But it did work for the style and the time. Right. One hundred percent. Not no digs on George here. And apparently John said that he gave George that song to sing because it was the easiest song for him to Are sing. Are you not merciful, Are John? You not merciful. Oh. Such a nice guy. Hashtag nice guy. <laughs> No, I don't think John would ever identify as a nice guy. No, not at all. No. But these days, singing the hard hitters like Roll Over Beethoven in clubs in Liverpool, George's voice had just the right amount of raspy imperfection they needed. Oh, yeah, I could see that. So by now, the Beatles were more popular than ever before. They were playing shows nearly every night, mostly at the Cavern on Matthew Street, and had a large dedicated fan base. Women threw themselves at them, even at this early stage, yeah. and each band member had their own fan club. Germany had given them a swagger they didn't possess a year before. Mm. They were beating out Rory Storm and the Hurricanes at this point. They were. Mm, yeah. The band made two more trips to Hamburg, and each time they came back home to bigger and bigger popularity. By 1962, they found a manager in Brian Epstein, a rich 27-year-old that had nothing better to do than manage the Beatles. You know, someday we do have to do a Brian Epstein episode because I don't know a ton about him, but the little little crumbs that I've discovered, fascinating. Yeah. And he died very early. Very early. So, and he launched uh he launched the Beatles, basically mm-hmm. he made them who they were. Yeah. So, yeah, he was a very interesting character. Yeah. He was good at it. He spruced up their image, putting them in matching suits and giving them all their infamous mop top haircuts. And though they were tight professional unit (laughs) during (laughs) the third Hamburg trip with their snazzy suits and manager, it was hard to go back. Stuart had died of a brain hemorrhage only a few Mm. days before their return to Germany. They were also turned down by Decca Records, and feeling thoroughly defeated, they reluctantly returned to Liverpool after Hamburg. Yeah, that was a rough trip. Yeah, definitely. It seemed to not get much better. They gave Pete Best the sack in 1962, and many many fans were pissed about it. Yup. So pissed that one fan punched George in the face for making a crack about firing Pete. Yeah, he was mad... This is why I love George and Ringo. This is my OTP. Yeah. Somebody was giving Ringo the business and George is basically like, I don't give him the business. 
he's got a great structure. And then they're like, fuck you. And then they punch George in the face for defending Ringo. And I'm like, George, yep. you sweet baby angel child. Yeah. Yep. You sweet You're little lovely. gawky angel. I love him. Yeah, you can clearly see George's black eye on the cover of Mercy Beat that came out shortly after that. Yep. I figured you'd talk about that, which is why I didn't talk about it in my (laughs) Rango episode. But I love that story where it's like they basically started a riot because they were so pissed off about firing Pete. Yep. They were really mad. Fuck them. Still, (laughs) it was clear that Pete had to go. Yeah, because Pete kind of sucked. Like A concert promoter named Sam Leach hit the nail on the head when he said that Pete Best, quote, was a good drummer. But he wasn't a good beetle. No, he was a wet fucking blanket. Yes. Like he wouldn't do anything. He didn't fit in with the rest of the guys. He was too straight laced and boring. He would go home immediately after every show. He wouldn't hang out with them. Didn't drink with them. Didn't like go and, you know, hang out with fans or anything. He just no. fucking went home. That was it. I got to have some more milk before I go to bed. <laughs> and then I got to get up early. Hit my mom, clean up the bar, and then start again. Practice on me drums. Still not the best drummer in Liverpool, but I'm going to keep working on it. Funny thing. Interesting story. A little tidbit I picked up in Tiddly my book. Um, they hired this guy named Neil Aspinall to be <laughs> like their 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 road manager, their bodyguard, their like mm-hmm. personal assistant. He... He pretty much did everything for them. Yeah. And apparently on like one of their last uh, sojourns to Hamburg, Neil Aspinall hooked up with Mona Best, Pete Best's mother, (gasps) and fathered a child with her. Woof. Yeah. Oh, no. Because I just remember reading about like Neil, I think, was very good friends with Pete actually yeah they were good friends they were very good friends like he was pissed when they fired pete this is all beetle shit but like they he was pissed when they fired pete and like he refused to do any of ringo's setup for months because he was still so mad what yeah i didn't talk about it because i didn't feel it was relevant but now that you brought him up fucking mona i'm real mad that you fired my friend but i'm gonna go fuck his mom (laughs) and then i'm never gonna set up your drums (laughs) <laughs> wow, Neil's kind of a dick bag. Aren't they all dick bags? Yeah, though? they're all kind of dick. You know what? That's kind of what we've learned about men in England in the sixties. Bunch 50s. of dick bags. They're all dick bags. Dick bags. Like a hundred percent pure dick bag. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but Ringo, on the other hand, was hilarious and fit right in. Yes. And George especially loved hanging out with Ringo and was a big proponent for getting him the job. Just like Paul campaigned for George to join the band, George campaigned for Ringo. As we learned in last week's episode, Ringo could keep a solid beat and knew when a song needed some flair. Yup. Fight me. (laughs) He was that guy at TGI Fridays with all the flair, but he knew when to bring it out. Right. Like, he wasn't obnoxious about it. Like, that one guy who's like, oh my god, he's the the office space guy. He was just the... I have flair and I'm going to wait for you to bring it up. Yeah. Oh, did you bring up my flair? Let's talk about it. Yeah. Cool. Does my, does my flair impress you? Yeah, I got funny little buttons. Yeah, this is Garfield and this says I hate Mondays <laughs> on it. I'm so funny. I honestly really want a Garfield I hate Mondays poster. Yeah. yeah. We all <laughs> I've hit that. that point in my life. <laughs> I need one that says I hate days. I hate existence. Existence <laughs> is pain. pain. 
You just need a V-Seeks poster. Yeah. Now with Ringo in tow, the band finished up two more trips to Hamburg that ended in December 1962. By now, Brian Epstein had secured the Beatles a record contract with EMI, and they had recorded their debut album, Please Please Me. Which, you know what? The more I think about that name, the more I fucking no, hate it. The more I think about pretty much every song title <laughs> and all of the Beatles lyrics, I'm like, this is infuriating. It's terrible. Like, all of the subject matter in all of the songs and all of the double meanings in all of the song titles just infuriates me. Hi. Please, please, please me. I've like, got a secret. <laughs> Do you want to know it? <laughs> I've got a crush on you. But that is just an adorable fucking song. But also, if you look at another man, I'm going to fucking murder you. <laughs> John Lennon is always here to bring in the, the really the scary abuse? shit. The really scary domestic abuse songs, you know. Yeah. Domestic abusey. Gary Busey's cousin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what he was. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Again, we can't help but dabble in Beatles, just like a yeah. touch. But yeah, their first, their debut album, Please Please Me, was released on March 22nd, 1963. The first single, Love Me Do, was climbing the charts in the UK and Beatlemania was just beginning to spark. Yep. They toured the UK as an opening act for a 16-year-old pop singer named Helen Shapiro, but in a real that thing you do surreal scenario, they became so popular as the tour went on that more people were going to see them than the main act. Oh, poor Helen. Yeah. She's just, she's doing her best. She was God smacking it. She was God smacking it. She had a couple of good songs. Good for you, Helen. Yeah. Their popularity followed George home, too. By now, the Beatles had made London their base of operations, but George would try to steal a trip home to Liverpool when time allowed. His family was now living in a nicer suburb outside of Speak, but it was soon crawling with Beatles fans. Oh, shit. George would have to crawl on his hands and knees so rabid fans couldn't see him inside. <gasps> That's yeah. crazy and terrifying. Very terrifying. Oh, my gosh. And this wasn't even... Beatlemania yet. Yeah. Not at all. This is like Beatlemania. <laughs> like it kind of, they wanted the Beatles, but they didn't need yeah. the Beatles. Yeah. Then She Loves You was released in August 1963 and fucking exploded. Mm -hmm. Before this, fans followed them around and being recognized all the time had its pros and cons. But after She Loves You was released, the Beatles became bona fide rock stars Privacy did not exist anymore. Nope. George, in particular, had a really difficult time with Beatlemania. I believe it. As somebody who is a loner, right? Yeah. And doesn't really... He's not like Ringo. He can't just sit down and talk to anybody. He can't just... Yeah, not he, that he can't, but he doesn't want to just bullshit. He's not a talker. He really only talks if he has something to say or, like, a really fucking sarcastic joke to make. Yeah. And that's why i kind of relate to him a lot of course he needs his alone time yes he can be an extrovert if he wants to but uh, he needs a lot of like time to just sit and recharge and reset and like just hang out with himself but at this point in the beatles career that's not plausible he ain't gonna have it it's not gonna happen no he liked his solitary time 
So the constant, unrelenting barrage of fans was exhausting and aggravating. Yeah, I bet. Out of all the Beatles, George probably had the worst time grappling with fame. He was very private and appreciated peace, quiet, and solitude. In fact, he needed it to feel balanced. Yeah, that's fair. But after 1963, it was going to take a lot of soul searching to find that balance again. Yeah. And that is where we're going to stop it for now. Oh, my goodness. Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. And that's that's it for George part one. Yeah, that's just baby George. That's all baby George because, like, he was only in his very early 20s. He was only 20 in 1963. Yeah, he was 19 in 1962 when, like, the Beatles really became the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, once Beatlemania hit with 63 and that's... 20 years old. Can you imagine being 20 and just like, here you go, asshole. <laughs> Dear, deal with this unprecedented fame. Cool. Have fun with that. Yay. <laughs> oh, poor George. Here, be mobbed everywhere you fucking go. Man, I'm really getting so much of a better understanding of George. Yeah, me too. Like, I always kind of liked George no, just same. because he was, he was really the dark horse of this whole thing, <laughs> which... We'll get into next time also. But yeah, he was definitely the dark horse of this, of the Beatles. And I think that's why I liked him so much. And he also still had the best song. Also has the best hair. Oh, yeah. That hair. Mm. Chef's kiss. Beautiful. (laughs) Thank you, Louise and Harold, for blessing him with such a quaff. That was a quaffy mop. Moppy quaff. (laughs) Indeed. And thank you all so much for listening to this rather short episode, but I feel you. You're yeah, like, this man. is a good place to stop. If I made it one episode, this shit would be like three hours fucking long. Right. So, so the next episode will be a chonker. It'll be everything after the Beatles, which yeah. honestly is a lot. It is. And we'll get into Eric Clapton. Oof. We'll get into Ravi Shankar. Oof. We'll get into Patty Boyd okay. and then Olivia Harrison and oh, yeah. all that shit. So <gasps> muckle up. Mm. Yeah, he's got an interesting crew of characters for sure. Yeah, and he had he had Oh, Traveling Wilburys. And we'll talk about the Traveling Wilburys. Which I'm here for. Um but yeah, he had he had like one friendship or relationship at a time that really influenced his life oh yeah so like he definitely picked very specific people to get really close to at very specific times in his life that really influenced everything oh yeah 100 so, yeah i could see that i think i would say the only constants were probably the beatles yeah and even then like oh there were there were ins and outs i think he really looked up to john In the Mm -hmm. beginning, in the beginning of the Beatles, he really looked up to John as a musician and as a person because he was kind of everything that George wanted to be, but didn't really, he wanted to be, but didn't want to be. Yeah. Just like somebody that was very charismatic and outgoing and George was just like, nah, I'm I'm just not like that. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not a ladies man. I'm not a talker. I'm not a bullshitter. I'm not. But, you know, he he still admired John for how he could literally just shit out an amazing melody and yeah. make it into an amazing song. Yeah. So that was like, I think, the first 
major musical relationship that he that really influenced him a lot yeah i could see that yeah definitely yeah i think as far as the beatles go i mean I, everybody knows it george and ringo were the only two who could keep up good steady relationships with everyone yeah as you'll be able to tell in weeks to come paul and john not so much Paul and John. We are have... really building this snowball snowmobile up to like a big <laughs> ass avalanche. Yeah, this is just the tiny little snowball that's rolling down the hill. Ringo it's... and George are the fun ones. Yeah, that's why we did them first. Oh my god. Anyway, but yes, thank you guys for listening. We hope you guys learned a lot about George's early years and want to come back in next week for George's later years. Yeah, because he really has made amazing music he really is an amazing artist and he had a very interesting you know second act yeah he has a very prolific prolific career yeah and it's very up and down yeah and he not it it's not just music he dabbled in film and arts yep. and all that other stuff and his whole fucking nosedive into spirituality is just it's fun it's interesting it's interesting <laughs> It's It'll be a lot to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So come back in next week for that. And, you know, if you guys are digging what we're putting down, go visit our website, rockcandypodcast.com. And you can find old episodes like the Ringo episode I did last week in case you missed that because it was delightful because Ringo's delightful. Because Ringo not, is fun. Do not brush Ringo aside. And also find our links to our social medias. We have Facebook, Instagram, and the Twitters. And, you know, enjoy that stuff. But, you know, also check out our network, Pantheon Podcasts, for more music podcasts if you like music a lot. If that's why you're here, there's more music over there. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, if you're picking up what we're putting down, then you can slap us a few buckaroonies on our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Podcast, And maybe we'll give you some stuff in return. Yeah. It's no, a, we will. It's a whole, like, you know, money for something. And your and chicks, your chicks for, for free. free. I guess. I guess. I mean, technically, we are free. Yeah. I mean, you can still... If you're not feeling the giving up to our Patreon, that's fine. We, you will still get our tricks for free. Yeah. We appreciate downloads instead. Yeah. Downloads, okay positive reviews, whatever you want to give. We're fine with that. Yeah. Shit's spicy right now. We get it. We very much get it. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we're doing a podcast so we can talk about other things that can take our mind off it. Yeah. Yeah. So come on in next week for George Part 2. And until then, a party on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. And party on, you could raise the kids out there. You've got a lovely structure. I'm going to give you a real good cold structure if you don't watch that mouth. I'm gonna do some stuff to your crumb. <laughs> oh, I've got my mates. They're in the bunk above me. They're gonna clap when I finish. I did it.